Today's passage is from Genesis 3, 7 through 24. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and uh, welcome to the Leewood Campus of Christ Community. We're really glad you're here. And uh, I'm Tom and I have the joy of serving on our teaching team. And uh, trust you're enjoying the beautiful fall day. So nice to see all your smiling faces. Y'all look happy today. So that's great. This past week, The Economist magazine featured an article entitled, Closing in on Cancer. Science will win the battle on cancer, but it's half the fight. Now, the author presents kind of the good news, bad news picture with these words. Listen carefully. From a purely technical perspective, he writes, it is reasonable to expect that science will one day turn most cancers into either chronic diseases or curable ones. But cancer is not only fought in the lab, it is also fought in doctor's surgeries, in schools, in public health systems, and in government departments. The dispatches from these battlefields are much less encouraging. Cancer kills millions of people, not simply for want of scientific advance, but also because of bad policy. Now, what I like about this article is The Economist portrays a well-framed picture of our modern world. We live in a time of extraordinary technological innovation, but at the same time, we face unimaginable challenges. 
Clearly, there is goodness to modern life. One of my favorite researchers of this is Swedish professor Hans Rosling. And he has made the point that the last hundred years, the vast majority of people on planet Earth enjoy remarkably better physical health and greater physical longevity. In fact, just in the last couple of decades, we are told that over one billion people on the planet have moved from desperate poverty to sustaining life well. One billion people. Along with that, we know that child mortality is down and child labor is declining. And through free market economic growth and technological innovation, medical care is remarkably better, and the democratization of information through the internet is accessible globally. Along with that, education is more accessible. So we can really celebrate and should celebrate these things. But I want to suggest to you there is a clear and present danger lurking among them. And that is when we assume because of our, quote, advanced technology, we are now smarter and better people. That evolutionary progress is the inevitable nature of things, and we are now on the right side of history. That newer means better. On July 16th, 1945, as a bright glow, an imaginary bright glow filled the New Mexico sky, the brilliant physicist and philosopher Julius Oppenheimer, director of the Manhattan Project, watched the first detonation of the first nuclear bomb on planet Earth. He penned these words watching this watershed moment. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, and most people were deathly silent. I stood there and I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Oppenheimer's reflections taken from the Hindu scriptures, raises important questions for us. Does technological innovation lead to moral progress or merely greater means for greater immorality? Does greater education lead to greater human enlightenment or more well-educated barbarians? Has the last century of progress made us better off morally, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, spiritually? And how are we as thoughtful people to explain that the 20th century in modern recorded history is the bloodiest century ever? Hmm. Is new and newer really better? See, a common cultural narrative that comes from every corner of society tells us that newer is better. And underlying this cultural narrative is a big, big assumption. And that assumption says we are evolving as a more enlightened species. 
that greater educational access and increased technology make us smarter and better people. That the saviors of education and technology as well as other good human endeavors can somehow change the broken human condition. That newer is better. But is it? The Holy Scriptures from the opening words challenge this new is better narrative. And it reminds us that the broken human condition is far greater and more pervasive than we might ever imagine. That as good as technology and education can be, our human problem is greater than any human endeavor can overcome. So the question is, if newer is not necessarily better, what is? If you brought your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, the true Word of God. Last week, we examined the opening verses in Genesis 3. And here we encountered the evil one tempting Adam and Eve and their subsequent disobedience to God. This morning, as this narrative continues in Genesis 3, we discover that at the heart of the broken human condition is a sin problem. And beginning in verse 7 and continuing through the end of the chapter, two big truths emerge, two truths. First, our brokenness has grave consequences. Our brokenness has grave consequences. On the heel of this, there emerges the second truth, and that is our brokenness requires a supernatural solution. A supernatural solution. So you ready? Let's dive in. First, our brokenness affects us in profound ways. Three ways, particularly, is how the text unfolds. First, our brokenness affects us personally. Now, beginning in verse 7, you'll notice in the text, and it's even more emphatic in the original text, that a major change is taking place in the narrative. It's like, hey, watch this. The text in verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were very opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we need to grasp is that Adam and Eve now feel a deep and overwhelming and black hole kind of sense of guilt and shame that comes over them. Innocence, the harmony, the safety, the intimacy they had experienced with God and each other at the end of chapter 2 is now gone. One of the most popular psychologists of our day through her TED Talks and her writings is Brene Brown, a very insightful woman. And she clarifies in helpful ways the difference between guilt and shame. Both of these realities are in play in the text. But it's important to distinguish them. Brene Brown says, and rightly so, she makes the point that guilt is about feeling bad about something we have done. It is a deep behavioral dissonance. Shame, on the other hand, is feeling bad remorse about who we are. And it is deeply wounding. It is not just behavior, it is our personhood. So both of these are in play in Genesis 3, and we see this in a repetition of a really important word translated in English, naked. In verse 7 and verse 9, the emphasis now when sin entered the world is that Adam and Eve are now naked. It is not just their physical nakedness, it is deeply their spiritual nakedness, emotional nakedness in all dimensions of human reality. It is a picture of their guilt 
and their shame. Now, what do Adam and Eve try to do? The text tells us they immediately try to cover their guilt and shame with clothes they make. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the first trace or evidence of human technology in the Bible. And it is very important that they look to their own technology to cover them with guilt and shame. They not only seek to cover themselves, you'll notice, with the technology that is offered, they also now try to hide from God. Now, in verses 8 through 10, you hear this, right? And let me just scoot over that quickly. But they hear the sound of the Lord God walking the garden, and they hide themselves among the trees. And God calls out to him, fasting, where are you? Where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid. I was naked and hid myself. Now, the Genesis writer describes, I think, for us, what I would call the first game of hide-and-seek on planet Earth. Don't you think? Isn't that exactly it? When you read it, that's exactly what's going on. As a kid, so you know I grew up in a large family. I had six siblings. I'm second to the youngest. And man, we had great baseball games, but we also had great hide-and-seek games. And when I was younger, my siblings would play with me, right? And I would think early on that I could hide so well no one could find me. So I would hide and our house and yard had lots of places that hide were cool. But you know what happened? No matter how good I hid, my older brothers and sisters were sharp in finding me, right? There, there was their ability to find me and a limited amount of places I could hide. So it's one thing, you know, to play a fun game of hide and seek with our friends or family as a kid, but it's absolutely futile and foolish to play this game with God. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve are doing. Now notice in verse 9, if you have your Bible open, God says to Adam, he actually raises a question. Adam, where are you? Now in the written form, you don't hear the nuance, but the question is, does God not know where Adam and Eve are? Well, what's going on here is that God's question to Adam is not because God somehow needs information or doesn't know where they're hiding. God is not seeking information he does not know. Hear me carefully. He is seeking intimacy he knows has now been lost. Think connection, not information. If you were here in our series earlier, you noticed that man being made or humans being made in the image of God, this image of God word in Hebrew has two ideas, connection and reflection. To be made in God's image is to reflect God's image and to connect intimately with Him. So here, this is shattered. It makes coherent sense in the narrative. Don't miss that. Now, with delightful intimacy gone, painful alienation sets in. Do you see it? There is a downward spiral here. Alienation leads to shame. Shame leads to fear, and fear leads to hiding. The Bible refers to our brokenness as sin. Now, that word, you know, it's all over the Bible in different forms in the Hebrew and Greek with the original language. There's all kinds of words for sin because it matters. But in the 21st century, what is sin? Conjures up lots of stuff in our mind, right? So let me just kind of weed through the clutter for a moment and get to the heart of the matter. Deal? Hear me carefully. The Bible framing of sin, sin is not just what we do. In other words, it's not just a behavioral error. It is fundamentally who we are. In other words, listen carefully, we are sinners, yes, 
because we sin. But perhaps even more importantly in the text is we sin because we are sinners. So our brokenness affects us personally. But notice how the narrative continues. Do you see it? Sin next, secondly, the consequences, the grave consequences, is it affects us relationally. This is really important for us to grasp. That sin is not just a vertical reality, it is a deeply horizontal one. And both of those matter. So at its core, human brokenness is relational. A broken relationship with God, and also sin breaks our relationship with others. Now, notice what Adam does. In verse 11... When God confronts his disobedience, you should have a bit of humor as you read it. In the midst of this darkness, there's jabs of humor. Uh, You should chuckle just a little bit with also incredulity. Adam does what we all do, though. We can see ourselves at Adam, can't we? Rather than taking personal responsibility for his actions, what does he do? He scrambles and he plays the blame game. That's just all over this text. Adam says to God, right? Ah, the woman. It's very emphatic. Eve's not named yet. The woman did it. She's the problem. And don't miss that Adam is not only blaming her, do not miss this, he is shaming her. Isn't it amazing? And the writer of the text wants you to make a contrast here. There's riveting contrast. You should hear the chalkboard go. (laughs) Why? Because Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, after God parades the animals in front of Adam, he brings Eve, the woman. And Adam's response in Genesis 2 is, wow. A great translation is, she's amazing. God, now you're talking business. But in Genesis chapter 3, do you hear it? Adam has changed his tune. It's not, wow, it's, whoa! She's the problem. Don't miss this. God, you made a mistake. Notice in verse 12. Adam does not even admitiate the fruit until he has explicitly blamed the woman and implicitly blamed God for giving him the woman. Notice the verb gave. You gave me. So what is going on here? The blame game. And Unless, you know, you're sitting next to a guy and you're poking him. Women, you know, there's something here for you too. The woman's not off the hook here. And notice when God confronts her, In verse 13, what does she say? The devil made me do it, basically. (laughs) One of the greatest evidences of human brokenness in your life and mine is how rather than taking responsibility for our thoughts, behaviors, problems, commissions, omissions, we play the victim card and we blame it on others. As a pastor, I find myself interacting with marital couples quite a bit. And let's be honest, as two sinful creatures, marriage is both gruesome and glorious. Marriage is hard in any case. And when I have a couple in to see me to talk about marriage and struggle, they're usually struggling. Each situation is unique, of course. There are many 
contributing factors for marriage to flourish. But I've discovered over the years something that's really true in my experience. When the layers of disappointment, conflict, unhappiness, resentment are peeled back in front of me, the blame game usually surfaces. Pretty quickly, one spouse begins pointing fingers at another spouse. Oh, it's his fault. He, he's married to his career and not me. He works all the time. He's not there for me. Then the finger comes back, this finger. It's her fault. She doesn't understand the pressures I have at work. She's unrealistic in her expectations for our marriage. No husband would ever make her happy. You know what I've discovered? That seldom is the corner ever turned in the direction of a more flourishing marriage until the blame and shame game ends. Blame game, of course, is not reserved for marital couples. Think with me for a moment. We find ourselves dealing with perhaps a mental health issue. And we blame our parents for how we were raised. Or we may be struggling financially and we blame our boss at work for not paying us enough or holding us back from career advancement or students, we may not have the GPA we want right now. And we blame our teachers for not giving us a good grade. And don't we blame God a lot? A painful loss, shattered dream, an unanswered prayer. Jesus highlighted the blame game in his brilliant Sermon on the Mount. He said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log? That is like a two-by-four that is in your own eye. See, our brokenness wreaks havoc on relationship with others. We not only sin against God, we sin against others. And here in Genesis 3, we are reminded, first, our brokenness affects us personally. Secondly, grave consequence number two. Our brokenness affects all our relationships. But third, notice where the focus of the text goes. Third, our brokenness affects us corporately. Did you notice in verses 14 through 19, the Genesis writer now highlights the pervasive impact that Adam and Eve's disobedience to God has taken. It's not just on them or on their relationship, but on the entire created order. We see this in many ways. You will notice the pervasive impact of sin is emphasized both in the amount of time the text gives this as well as a literary genre shift. That's like scaffolding. You'll notice in your Bible, if it's translated well, that beginning in verse 14, it's framed in more of a poetic way. Versus prose, that's exactly right. The poetic form of the Hebrew text in verses 14 through 19 emphasizes the great intensification in the text. And it's like this. From an early whisper to a loud voice to a thunderous roar. It is as if God's word to the serpent, to the woman, and to Adam is now thundering with intensity. First, God addresses the serpent, declares judgment. And notice he's the, he, the serpent is not obliterated. Secondly, notice in verse 16. Have you ever wondered when you read Genesis 3 with our cultural distance, this was written 4,000 years ago, we go, what's this 
pain and childbirth and thorns and thistles. <laughs> what is that? Well, it's absolutely compelling and coherent if we understand Genesis 1 through 3. Because notice, in, first of all, in verse 16, that we have this issue of procreativity being hindered, childbearing. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1 in the cultural mandate, God says to humans, before sin and death enter the world, be fruitful, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Fruitfulness in the Hebrew text is para. It means two things. All the way through the Old Testament. Procreativity, that's having babies. Productivity, that's good work. Both of those are vital. God designed us for both, to be fruitful, to glorify Him, and both are profoundly vandalized in Genesis 3. First, the para, fruitfulness of procreativity emerges in pain and childbirth in verse 16. But notice also, to the man, God says to Adam, that the fruitfulness of productivity given to both man and woman in Genesis 1 will now be frustrated. There will be thorns and thistles. You see how that's coherent? Now notice also the ground here. See the ground? The word ground. Ground here is not just the soil beneath their feet. It is that. But it is a picture of the entire created order. Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, will look back to Genesis 3 and say in Romans chapter 8, 22 in the New Testament that under this heavy weight of the curse of sin, notice the ground being cursed in the text, Paul will say the whole of creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Do you see how he brings that together? Rabbi Paul is given a midrash or a commentary on Genesis 3. God's command Adam in Genesis 2.15 to cultivate and keep the garden is now hijacked. Instead of technology glorifying God, it will become a means to bring glory to man. And we see this very quickly in the Genesis narrative. In Genesis chapter 11, you might want to look at this more this week. We have these chilling words that find their hideous fulfillment in a story we often think is kind of different. It's called the Tower of Babel. If you've read the Old Testament, you know about it. In Genesis chapter 11, in verse 4, we get right to the heart of the matter when we read these words. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. It's not that humans having a massive building project is the problem. We were created to do that. The problem in the Tower of Babel is what it represented. The Tower of Babel was about humankind dethroning the one true God and enthroning themselves as the center of the universe. Life was on their terms, in their strength, for their own glory. And notice the text in 11.4, the tower reaches to the heavens. It is a declaration that there is no end to what humankind could achieve without God. So here in Genesis 11, the sovereign God of creation and history interrupts this grand human experience called Babel. And towers of Babel have been occurring ever since, haven't they? Human governments, economic systems, educational institutions, vast armies, weapons, technologies, all for the glory of men and not for God. Yet in spite of many millennia of efforts, human brokenness remains. 
human impoverishment screams out through the echoes of history. When Brian Fickert was here for our Common Good Conference two years ago in 2015. He so insightfully framed human brokenness out of Genesis 3. And he raised the question, what is human poverty? And he answers with such good insight. I think we have it here. Poverty is the inability to fully experience image bearing. Poverty is rooted in broken relationships, and those relationships are broken for three reasons. Individual brokenness, systemic injustice, and demonic forces. That is the story. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Poverty is the loss of image bearing that is rooted in these three things. So here in Genesis chapter 3, friends, we see a bleak picture of human poverty, of human brokenness. And what we do is we enter into a Humpty Dumpty world with Humpty Dumpty people. Humpty Dumpty is a clever nursery rhyme, but it has brilliant theology. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horsemen and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. What Genesis is telling us is we have a big Humpty Dumpty problem. And we cannot solve it on our own. Our human problem is much worse than we may know or realize. Our human problem has grave consequences. It affects us personally, relationally, corporately. No amount of education, however good it may be. No technology, no matter how advanced we think it is, not the latest iPhone or government program or advanced degree can put Humpty Dumpty humans back together again. We have a great fall. We are too shattered and broken for any human solution. Our brokenness, Genesis tells us, has a supernatural origin and it demands a supernatural solution. And the good news of that supernatural solution comes out of Genesis 3. Two big hints of it. Look with me at verses 21 through 24. And the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life. That's immortality as a sinner. And live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Often we look at the first part of Genesis 3 and we do not see the emphasis of the crescendo of Genesis 3. How does Genesis 3 end? With a merciful exile from the Garden. But as the biblical narrative continues throughout the rest of the Bible, we will see this exile is not permanent. One day yet future redeemed image bearers will dwell with God without sin and death in a new garden city, in the new heavens and new earth. And as we wrap up this series through Genesis 1 through 3 this morning, would you hear the wise words of the late Dallas Willard who said it so well. He said, without the creation story, we are strangers to our own lives. What is Dallas saying? If we don't get Genesis 1 through 3 right, we don't get much of anything right. If we don't understand the deep problem we have, we don't understand God's solution. Two applications emerge, I think, at the end of Genesis 3. 
These two applications are gospel hope and vocational stewardship. Gospel hope and vocational stewardship. With that in mind, let me ask a couple questions for your reflection this week. First, have you embraced the good news of the gospel? Here in Genesis 3, we have the bad news, but we have hints of the good news. We looked at this last week. In verse 15, we get a glimpse of the seed that would one day come that would destroy the serpent. Seed is the person of Jesus. The biblical narrative unfolds. We see that Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the one who comes, is born of a virgin Mary. He comes to earth on a rescue mission to defeat Satan and sin and death. There is atoning death on the cross and his death-defying resurrection. When the Jewish leaders asked Jesus about the interpretive key that unlocked the whole Bible, what did Jesus say? He says, it all points to me. Genesis 1 as creator. Genesis 3 as redeemer. It all points to Jesus. Newer is not better, but Jesus is. Here in verse 21, we get the next hint. We see how God made garments of skin to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve the first time. There is a sacrifice of one creature for another and the shed blood it would require. And throughout the scriptures, we will hear this repeated refrain, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? When John introduces his gospel in 129, what does he say of Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, of the world. The life we once had in the garden beckons us back. And looking back to Genesis 3, we hear Jesus' words in John 10, 10. Notice its connection to Genesis 3. The thief, you could say the serpent, Satan, comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Well, the serpent brought sin and death to the garden. Jesus brings forgiveness and new life to each of us who embrace him in repentance and faith. Salvation in Christ is the only way. It is a gift to receive. It's nothing we can earn. Jesus did that for us. So if newer is not necessarily better, what is? From Genesis on, constant theme is Jesus is better. Jesus is far better. Jesus is the best. He is the only way. He is the only solution to our greatest human problem. Technology and education can bring us better better physical well-being and a more comfortable temporal life. But they cannot bring us spiritual well-being and eternal life. Only Jesus can do that. This is why Jesus says, What does it profit a person if they gain this whole temporal world and lose their eternal soul? Much is resting on the truth of the gospel for your life and mine this morning. Without Jesus, my eternal destiny and your eternal destiny, the Bible says, is unimaginably horrific. The Bible calls this eternal separation from God and describes it with the word hell. But the awesome news of the gospel is that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection, you and I can be forgiven. We can find new life, not only now and forever, and be spared the righteous wrath of a holy God and eternal separation from him. So this morning, if you have not repented of your sin, 
and place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Will you do that? In the quietness of your heart this morning. If you've already placed your faith in Jesus, will you prayerfully consider how this week you may share the good news of the gospel with your friends at work, classmates at school? Christ community, we talk a lot about the importance of neighborly love and loving our neighbor because Jesus talked a lot about it. But the greatest way you can love your neighbor is to proclaim the gospel and share the good news of the gospel with them. So let's embrace the gospel, let's live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. But notice, do you notice how Genesis 3 ends? It all builds to here. It ends in a very down-to-earth way in the here and now. Well, Adam and Eve are removed from the Garden of Eden, the mandate given them to work back in Genesis 1 and 2 is not removed because we were created with work in mind. From cradle to grave, we are called to contribute whether our contribution is paid or not paid. And we will stand before God one day and give an account for our vocational stewardship. Your work matters. So are you taking seriously your vocational stewardship? Can I ask you, what will you be doing this time tomorrow? Class at school, your office at work, making a sales presentation, showing a real estate property, managing a financial portfolio, serving a customer, a client, or a patient at home with your kids or grandkids. If you've embraced the gospel, your place of work this week is a primary place of Christ-honoring worship. Your place of work is a primary means for your spiritual formation into greater Christ-likeness. It is vitally important to realize that gospel faith not only makes it possible for us to get to heaven, but also to live for Christ with his constant care and intimate presence here and now. Apostle Paul summarizes it this way. Gospel-shaped life, he says, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that Jesus is who you serve. Is newer better? Or is Jesus better? Only Jesus and only him can fully heal your brokenness and mine. Only Jesus can give you the abundant life your hearts long for now and for all eternity. I think it's an appropriate response that we gather around the Lord's holy communion table this morning. Together we remember the foundational truth that Jesus can heal our brokenness. We return again not to a new practice, but to a very old practice. Holy communion is very ordinary. It's a low-tech experience. (laughs) And it reminds us that newer isn't necessarily better. What better is is Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Apostle Paul, as he invites the first century church to the communion table, as he invites us, notice he connects the past, present, and future. He says, when we come to this table, we proclaim the Lord's death, past, right? Now, present, until he comes, future. Christ's community, we practice open communion. That means you do not have to be a member to come to the Holy Communion table. There are several around the room. But it does mean you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're not sure about that, I encourage you to sit where you are. Allow God to speak to you and to respond to the good news of the gospel. So when you're ready, find a communion station near you, take the bread, dip it in the cup, come as groups to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Please come.